Let's join together in the prayer of illumination. O Lord of all, we all are here in your presence to receive all that you would give us. We pray for Pastor Nathan as he brings your word to us today. We just pray that you would fill him with your spirit, that you would give him confidence in all that you have given him to share with us out of the great love that you have for us, that love that flows through Pastor Nathan to all of us. Lord, we thank you for connecting us in your love, for giving us unity in your Holy Spirit, for giving us ability to understand and learn the things that you have for us that's beyond anything that's in any one of us, but that comes from you as a great gift to us. And as Pastor Nathan said in the first service, this word that you have for us, um, it's a gift. We read together in Acts 15, 1 to 20. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood." This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Amen. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you, worship team. That was wonderful. Listen, I love being outside, but at the same time, the acoustics in this room are fantastic. Like when we're singing together, I mean, not my singing, but your singing is fantastic. 
Hey, we're beginning a new series this fall, looking at the book of Galatians, which I love the book of Galatians. Um, It was one of the means by which God called me to vocational ministry uh, some 22 years ago. I'm just so happy that I can use like that time frame now, at that point in life where I can... Never mind, I'm sorry. Nevertheless, it's a very, very important book to me. But here's one, one of the things that I have just become more and more convinced of. The longer that I walk with the Lord and the more that I interact with the local church, oftentimes these little books in the New Testament, sometimes, well, oftentimes, I think we look at them as really books that are going to help our theology, which they do. And in, 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 in a real sense, they're going to impact and help grow our intellectual pursuits of God, which they do. But we ought to remember that these books are not primarily given for that purpose. You see, yes, God wants us to think right thoughts after him. He wants us to have good theology. At the same time, he also wants us to live our theology. He wants us to practice our theology. And really, at the heart of these books is how do we live differently as Christians? That's what's at the heart of it. So as we begin to peruse that this, this fall together, one of the things... I was thinking about as far as opening up this book is looking at this encounter at the Council of Jerusalem, which actually occurs in the book of Galatians. And I like this chapter for several reasons, but maybe the most prominent reason is because it's an example really of the heart of the entire book of Galatians. So having said that, if you would, can I, let me pray for, not just today, But this next several weeks as we pursue this phenomenal book, that God would be real to us, that our theology would grow, but even more so that our practice of loving him where we live and work and play would grow as well. Can I do that? Is that okay? I feel like it's appropriate. Lord, please help us. You are our only teacher. Father, would you use my very, very incomplete, fallible words to accomplish a magnificent purpose in equipping your people to live for Christ, maybe like never before, and simultaneously, perhaps convincing or persuading those maybe who aren't living for you to consider it. Father, you're capable of all things. Your glory is unmatched. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the most beautiful things I think about humans in general is our ability to have convictions. Have you ever really thought about that before? Like, it's such a part of the human experience, and it really is this magnificent aspect where we can take not just theoretical knowledge, but these beliefs that are so concrete to us, and they're so real to us, that we hold on to them because they secure us. They give us hope. They give us courage against, oftentimes, a, a bombardment of assailants that are wanting to persuade us differently. Like, our convictions is a very, very important, essential aspect to the human existence, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. But there's also a dark side to having convictions, isn't there? I mean, possibly, potentially, the most glaring dark side of having convictions is that just because you have a conviction doesn't mean that that conviction matches truth or even reality. Like, just having a conviction oftentimes isn't enough, which is why it's wise It's wise if we're going to have convictions, we also have to have the courage to test those convictions, to evaluate those convictions from time to time. Let me give an example. When I started learning how to drive, uh, my dad, which he did my whole life, I just didn't notice until I started driving, when he would slam on his brakes, he would reach his arm out like this to stop me from going through the windshield, 
Does anyone do that? It's okay, we're not going to judge you. Does anyone do that? In the first service, everyone did it, and I loved it. Well, well, most everyone. Uh, I did it, I, and so I developed this deep conviction that if I'm going to slam or tap on my brakes, especially in Houston traffic, which is god-awful, right, then, then I'm going to reach across and stop this person from going through the windshield. Well, the first time I did it to Elisa, my wife, she, she stared at me, like, not knowing what was going on. And I think she even said, I may be paraphrasing, but it's better for the story. She says, what are you, what are you, what are, what are you doing? And I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> so then I went back to my mom and I said, mom, hey, why did dad, why was that so important to him? And then, and then conversely, like, why is this now it's like so important to me? And he said, Nathan, realize your dad learned to drive in the late 1940s. I'm like, okay, so he's old, I get it. Like, but th- but then, then she says, but you don't realize like seatbelts don't become mandatory until the early 60s. So he, his most formative driving years, he, there was no seatbelt. So functionally, my dad had a deep conviction to reach his arm out and stop the person because they're not wearing their seatbelts. Now, listen, we don't live in that world anymore. Yet I still carry this conviction that's contained and that's conditioned by this other world in which my dad lived in. So it would behoove me to then go back and reevaluate, is that the best way to prevent someone from going to the windshield? I'm convinced yes, but nevertheless, at the same time, wearing a seatbelt is a good thing too. In the Christian life, now listen, I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian, I'm very biased, but I think the Bible is very wise in this aspect of our life. If you're going to have a conviction, the Bible over and over again encourages us to test those convictions, especially those convictions re- regarding religion or faith or our relationship with God. Like those things, we need to come back to. It's not like we figure it out and then it's over. No, no, we need to keep coming back to them because they're that important. And here in the book of Acts, Acts 15, we have an, inst- an event in which there are multiplicity of convictions surrounding one particular topic. Two primary convictions, which are this, that settle around this question. How does someone gain God's favor? Like, what does that look like? How does that happen? How does that occur? And what's so interesting is there are two different sides, essentially, that Luke is going to give us on how this occurs. And this is super important in this, book, in this particular event because there are droves of people that are non-Jewish, non-religious, non-Christian coming in wanting to join the church. And so the urgency of the matter is how do we deal with these people that don't come with the same traditions and values that we have? Like, essentially, what they're asking is what is the essentials of the Christian life? How do we identify and put parameters around what is absolutely essential? And the way I'm packaging that today is this. How do, what does it mean to, to have God's favor? Like, what does that look like? What needs to be in place? What doesn't need to be in place? So here's what I want us to do. I want us to unpack that question together. Using this chapter as, as, a, as a guide, like, that's fundamentally the question I want us to answer this morning. How does someone earn God's favor? How does it happen? Well, let's start somewhere where, regardless of your religious convictions or your faith convictions, or whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian, uh, can I just say this for a second? Time out for a second. Like, if you're someone who's not of faith and you're kind of like kicking the tires, can I just say how what a privilege it is that you would be here with us this morning? And I hope that you feel welcome here. The barn is an awesome place. I've only been here two months, but so far it's just all awesome. I hope you feel welcome, but more importantly than that, you know what? I hope you feel wanted. I really do. 
So can I start somewhere, regardless of where you're at on your spiritual journey, we can all agree on? When it comes to religious and faith convictions, I don't know if there are any more deep convictions that we can have. I think those convictions are the deepest that we can possibly have. Paul and Barnabas have been on this missionary journey where they have seen tons and tons of non-Jews, Gentiles, come to the faith. And now there's question as far as like, what do we do? How do we gauge whether these conversions are real or not? How do we know? How do we ensure that they're actually receiving the favor of the Lord like they think they are? And so there's a whole section, a whole side of the church that's advocating very clearly that the way in which someone earns God's favor is by two things. One, and we see it in verse 1 and verse 5, by receiving circumcision and thus being placed back under the law of Moses. And then there's another side saying, well, we think there's something different. Now, time out again for a second, because... I don't think anyone, well, first of all, happy Sunday, right? Uh, raise your hand if you thought we would be talking about circumcision this morning, right? <laughs> huh? Uh, here's my promise to you, and especially the smaller ears. I'm going to keep this as PG as possible, but the nature of the conversation probably is like a 1980s PG, not necessarily like a 2023 PG. Fair enough? Okay, time in. So the question is this, why is this circumcision deal so important? Because obviously, it has to mean something to these people, otherwise they wouldn't be advocating this to the degree in which they're advocating it. So why is it important? Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, if you're not, it's okay. We're going to journey through together, but if you're familiar with it, you know that it's a sign and seal of God's people in the Old Testament. It's a sign, it's, it was the, circumcision was the way in which people were identified as God's people in the Old Covenant. It was a sign that they were recipients of the promises that were given to Abraham first, and then Abraham's children, Abraham's children, and Abraham's children. And what was the promise? Simply this, that God would be their God, and that they would be God's people. The way that they were identified was through circumcision. It was a marking, an outward marking, that identified them different as the rest of the world. And it was a sign that they, had, they were subject to God's favor. Now, fun fact about circumcision as you read and progress through the, the, uh, progress through the Bible, you see its usage becomes changed. In fact, maybe we could say it more strongly, uh, it becomes less and less relevant. Let me show you what I mean here. And in order to do that, we have to get in the weeds a bit, but it's, it's okay. You're gonna, this, it's worth it. When we look at Moses giving circumcision, as far as an official part of the law, we see him also not just talking about outward circumcision, but also inward circumcision. And in a sense, in Deuteronomy 10, it's probably one of the most explicit passages where he says, hey, don't think you're okay just because you're outwardly circumcised. He says the goal of outward circumcision, while it's beneficial, is ultimately that your heart would be circumcised. Not that you're outwardly committed to God, but that your entirety is committed to him. Ultimately, that's the real way in which someone is identified as one of God's people. Don't just be outwardly circumcised, but also be inwardly circumcised as well. Which means the act of circumcision, the cutting of the flesh, the spilling of the blood, those things point to something greater. It points to another action that God is going to accomplish down the line through his own son. When Jesus' own flesh is cut off, when Jesus' own blood is spilt, and therefore his people are then identified with something greater than the outward sign of circumcision. That's the progression. It's pedagogical in sense it's teaching what the Messiah is going to be like, which is why when Jesus raises from the dead, and he commands his disciples, go into all the world, making disciples, 
And then he tells them to identify them with what? Circumcision? Thank God, no. What does he say? Baptism. There's a replacing of the sign because what the sign meant was fulfilled. And that's why Paul even elaborates on this more in Colossians 2. He says, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by outing of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism. There's a reversal that that occurs that's really important. Now, why, why are we even talking about that? Who cares? Well, it's a big fat deal, and this is why. Because in Christ, and in Christ alone, people have been given a new kind of circumcision, a new kind of identity marker, a sign of having earned God's favor. It doesn't come from human hands. It doesn't come from human actions. It comes from the actions of Christ himself, his flesh being cut off, his blood being spilled. And it's represented through baptism, which is wonderful. Why? Because it's immensely less painful. (laughs) And it's also open to everyone. Who receives the sign of of the covenant in the Old Testament? Just dudes. Who gets it now? Everyone gets it now. It's a better sign. It's a cleaner sign. It's the ultimate sign in which circumcision was pointing to. So the big question is, well, then why in the world are these guys wanting to go back to this? Like, why is there a sect of people, which I think... Luke tells us that they're former Pharisees, which I think indicates some things, some reason in in which they want to go back to this. But do they realize, do they not see, in going back to a system in which Christ came to fulfill, they're nullifying the entire reason that Jesus came to begin with? Do we see that? Like, if you can be, if you can have favor with God through the law, why does Jesus come? And ultimately, why does Jesus give his life? It seems rather pointless. It seems as if something else is going on there entirely. Now, hold on, because I was super convicted of this this week, and so I'm going to share it with you. I think my temptation when I read passages like this where there's like an obtuse disagreement, and one is clearly in the wrong, and the other one's clearly in the right, that's relative, but like my first instinct is to really demonize these people. Like, how could you be so dumb? How could you be so, so, so wrong? And I don't think I'm alone. I think oftentimes maybe that's our tendency. And I think the reason why that's our tendency sometimes is because we forget where we were when we came to Christ. You know, one of the greatest pieces of advice I've ever gotten from a pastor was, Nathan, don't ever forget what your life was like before you knew Christ. He said, learn all the theology you can. Be the best preacher you can. Do all of the things well, but don't you dare ever forget what it was like before Christ. And my friends... Before we demonize these people, before we consider them Sith Lords running around trying to chop everyone to pieces who are not on their team, like, before we do that, let's remember our own story. You see, when I became a Christian, like, I had tons of erroneous convictions that didn't just necessarily go away overnight. Maybe yours did, mine didn't. I mean, yes, I was a Christian, covered by the blood of, of Jesus, you know, singing all of the 90s worship music with full gusto, and also an idiot at the same time. But now I'm 36, I'm still an idiot, but I'm less of an idiot, because Christ has been bringing me more into conformity in his mind and who he is, in my mind of, of who he is. Lest we never forget what we were like prior to Christ. The more we realize how gracious God has been with us, it's my deep conviction, and I think it's the teaching of the scripture, the more we're willing to be patient with those who have immature convictions. Now, having said that, 
Having said that, at the same time, sometimes loving people well means confronting their erroneous convictions. It means correcting their immature convictions. Like, that's part of love. But first, you know, we have to understand, people don't go from zero to ten overnight, even when they become Christians, especially with convictions. Convictions are not just intellectual pursuits. They are deeply emotionally strongholds in our life. I mean, think about these guys who grew up Pharisees, who have, who have been living that way their entire life, who have been praised for being that way their entire life. And now they've given it all up. And now they're trying to follow Jesus and conform to his image and likeness. But yet the tra- the, to think that the trappings of those old convictions just go away, it's just not rational. But again, as I said, that doesn't mean that, that, that there's no confrontation that needs to happen. And in fact, that's actually, exactly what occurs next. Because just because we have convictions especially faith convictions, it doesn't mean that they're all equal. Not all faith convictions are equal. Some, conv- some faith convictions can actually do serious harm. And unfortunately, as I say that, many of us say absolutely they can. And many of us have actual people and stories in our past where religious convictions have not brought life and freedom, but they've brought trouble and damnation and a whole host of frustrations. And can I, can I just say for a second, can I just say, I'm sorry, and that's not okay. That is not okay. But that's one of the reasons why, if we're going to have convictions, we've also got to be able to have the courage to reevaluate them. Peter stands up, and he begins to bring some clarity, I think, to the situation. In verse 7, he stands up and he says, And brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth of Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us too. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. One of the most fascinating, well, one of my favorite parts of this entire event is what Peter is saying here, because it, re- it is a reminder that God has always, from day one, ground zero, been on a mission to redeem humankind. Humankind. Not just the Jews, not just everyone who's not Jews, but everyone. He has been on a mission in the Old Testament beginning in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, to redeem humankind. Now, the mission is different by degree in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. So, for instance, Psalm 67, I think, summarizes really well what the mission of God was through Israel as a people. When the psalmist says, may God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. What the psalmist is alluding to is the centripetal degree of the mission of Israel. The goal of Israel is to live in the land faithfully to God and be so attractive that all of the neighboring nations would come to Israel and say, what in the world is going on here? Can we please worship your God? In fact, it only happens really one time in the book of Kings when the queen of Sheba, pagan queen, comes over and says, Solomon, you've got to tell me what's happening in Israel because whatever's happening here needs to go back with me. Other than that, spoiler alert, they fail massively. Israel fails massively which is why one of, the, one of the profound reasons Jesus comes into the world. Why? Because he's picking up where Israel left off. He's doing and completing their mission in ways in which they couldn't do it. Jesus comes in as true Israel, and he fulfills their mission. 
And then he changes that mission by degree, not by scope. The goal is still the nations. The heart, the heart of God is still for the nations. But Jesus changes it. No longer are God's people to set up shop and let people come in. But rather, the Spirit is given. Why? So that God's people can be empowered to go out. Whatever the opposite word for centripetal is, I can never say it. It has an F. Like, thank you. Thank you so much. This is why we're friends. <laughs> thank you, Mike. Yeah, it's an outward mission. How about that? That's an easier way. It's an, out, it's an outward mission. It's focused on the Spirit's power, that which Jesus accomplishes because he fulfills Israel's mission. And here's the thing. The law nowhere was to be the primary instrument by which this mission is pushed out, or, or it's not the primary instrument that humankind is to be redeemed through. It's not. It serves a place, but that's not the place that it serves. Look at verse 10 and 11. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Great question. And then verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. God's favor. God's favor cannot be earned by good behavior. It cannot be earned by who your mom and dad was. It cannot be earned by religious adherence to the law. That's not the point. That's not the purpose. And here's the thing that is just killer. The more we try to make those things our Savior or redeem us, the more we become enslaved to them. The better I try to be as a person, the more perpetually I'm faced with how I'm not as good of a person. That standard in and of itself becomes crushing to me. We need something better than the standard. We need something that can accomplish the standard for us. So now let's, let's circle back. We're ready now. Let's circle back to our original question, which was what? How does someone earn God's favor? And here's the answer. You can't. You cannot earn God's favor, but... And thank God for the buts in the Bible. But it can be earned for you. You cannot earn God's favor, but it can be earned for you. Peter gets the crowd going. He's bringing lots of clarity. But it's really Pastor, it's, it, 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 it's, it's really Pastor James that comes in uh, and just brings it home. The half-brother of Jesus stands up in verse 13. It says, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. James validates Peter not because he's his homeboy. James validates Peter's conviction because Peter's conviction is reflective of what the Bible principally teaches concerning how someone earns the favor of the Lord. And what he says is so, it's just so interesting. And at the same time, it's, it's weird because he refers to the prophet Amos, who lives much earlier than this event occurred, and he refers to him speaking about this tent of David. Now, scholars will tell us that the tent of David was this prophetic tabernacle or temple of sorts where ultimately Jew and Gentile, the nations would come to the Lord and worship him in his spirit and in truth and they would receive his presence and they would receive his goodness and kindness and his favor forevermore. 
Amos, excuse me, James is looking around at all of the Gentiles, all of the non-Christians, all of the people who really shouldn't be coming to the Lord because they don't have the same background, they don't have the same education, but through these miraculous missionary efforts, God is calling all of these different sorts of people back to himself. James looks at that and says, the only reason this is happening is because the tent of David has been restored. The prophetic temple is here. And the big question is like, well, who restored it? How did it become restored? In Matthew chapter 12, we're given this really, really provocative Jesus. I love provocative Jesus. It's probably my favorite. Can you say that? I like all of Jesus, but I love it, love it when he's provocative. And in Matthew chapter 12, he says this. This is the greater David. Jesus Christ himself makes this statement. It's remarkable about himself. When the Pharisees are accusing him of something violating the temple, Jesus says this, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. You see, Jesus describes himself as something greater than the physical space in which God's presence would occupy as the physical space where heaven and earth would meet. He describes himself as something greater than the space in which sinful men and women would come from all works of life, all walks of life, rejoined together as one people to receive the favor of the Lord. Jesus says, yeah, that place that you're wanting so desperately, I'm greater than that place. What's so absolutely fascinating is how they respond to that. And you and I know how they respond. And if you don't, I'll share with you. They should have worshipped him. They should have said, thank you for coming. They should have said, finally, the favor of the Lord can be ours. But that's not what they do, is it? They take him. They beat him. They mock him. They break his skin. They hang him on a cross until he breathes his last breath. And the question is, why? Why in the world would he willingly go through all of these things? Because my friends, in those moments, he was doing the very thing that you and I could ever do, could never do. He was earning the favor of the Lord on our behalf. You see, Jesus, the perfect Son of God, the holy, holy Son of God himself, the only one who's ever earned God's favor at the end of his life gives it away. Why? So that it could be gifted to you and it could be gifted to me. The law could never provide what Jesus has done, nor should it ever be given the credit to, to anything comparable to what Jesus has done. But that doesn't mean that there's not a place for it in our lives. Right? James is going to say one more thing that's really profound in verses 19 and 20. When they're, when they're finally deciding, in all practice, how, what, do, what do we do with the Gentiles? We tell them to cling to Jesus, to trust in Jesus the same way that we have. And then, verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we not should make trouble, don't, don't make trouble for the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from those, have been, those which have been strangled, and from blood. You see, the law still have a, has a place in the life of the believer, but its place is not to merit that person a relationship with God. As one pastor, I think, put it well, he says, Thus, we're not saved. We don't find favor from God by the law. But we're saved for the law. The law is how we regulate our relationship with God. 
not the way that we merit the relationship as a whole. So where do we, where do we go from here? Let me just make a few comments. Let me wrap this up. Where, where do we go from here? Listen, convictions are beautiful things. They really are. Doesn't mean they're all equal, but they're beautiful things. They're a part of our experience that, that, that makes life exciting and courageous. They're wonderful and they should be expressed, but if we're willing to have them, we've got to be equally as courageous in reevaluating them from time to time. Because we're imperfect people. Times change. Seatbelts are way better than me sticking my arm out in front of the passenger. And that's okay. Especially when it comes to our religious convictions, our convictions about faith, about Jesus. We need to constantly be reevaluating those things in light of what God has revealed to us. Favor from God can excuse me, favor, favor from God must be earned. But not by you. And not by me. But what we can't do, Jesus has done for us. He's lived a life that we never could live. He's died a death that ultimately we deserve. All the while, earning, gifting us the favor of the Lord. And I think the more beautiful that that becomes to us, the more precious that becomes, the more we long to be like him. The more we're gracious with other people and their immature convictions, and the more courageous we become sometimes in confronting those convictions. All in all, how does someone earn favor from God? You can't, but Jesus has. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the gift of grace and mercy that you have given us. Father, I'm thankful for the capacity we have as human beings to have convictions. It's, convictions are they're a part of life. And it's, some, it's, it's something that you want us to have. But Lord, you also want us to keep them in check. You want us to reevaluate based on your truth, based on your reality. So Lord, I pray as a community, not as individual lone rangers, but Father, as a community that we are able to be gracious with one another and to, and to challenge, one, and challenge one another, one another when, we, when, it's, when it's needed. But ultimately, Lord, would we be so satisfied and so overwhelmed with what you've done for us because what the law could never do, you have done in your son, Jesus. And Father, we are thankful beyond measure. We love you, we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.